university here, um, the, whether um, we were born in this country or not, that diversity, or whether some of us um, speak English as a second language, or whether we are genderqueer, um, or heterosexual, or um, physically able-bodied or physically not able-bodied or mentally um, able-bodied or not, (laughs) Um, whether we describe ourselves as a person of color or white. So there is such a diverse expression of life and often I know for myself when I come into communities, there's just a, especially being, um, coming into a new community, it's so easy not to feel part of the community. Even sometimes when we've been coming a lot, and it might be because of one of those um, um, not identities but locations that I've named or could be another location that I haven't named. But for whatever uh, uh, we're carrying or living with, I wanted to especially welcome all of that into this room so that um, in for this evening we feel welcomed. And that just feels so important to me. Uh, And it was so funny because I was um, meditating and I just grabbed a folder and um, to put my notes in, and it says "Welcome." If you can't see it, it's when you when you um, teach at Spirit Rock, they always leave a, a folder that says "Welcome" with all their information in it, even when you've been going for years and years. And so it was like, "Oh yeah, welcome." You know, welcome, yeah, all parts of us and all parts of me welcome in our own different expressions, unique expressions. So, um, uh, and so in that welcoming, I just want to say how happy I am to be here. I've um, been in the Bay Area for about three years. So I've moved here for three years, and it's just really great to meet you in this huge church, this huge room. So, and, um, and then I, I wanted to um, start off um, sharing a story that I heard driving in my car up to Mendocino last weekend um, on This American Life. And it's the story is about uh, an African American preacher called Carl, Carlton Pearson from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, his father and his grandfather were preachers 
in the evangelical tradition, and he followed in their footsteps. They um, uh, were janitors and um, worked in the service industry, and he broke rank a little bit by going to college, but came out and started to preach. And he had something that really was, um, that moved people. And so he started to attract a lot of people to his preaching. And a number of years after he began, he began his own church called the Church of Light. More and more people came from hundreds to thousands. And he brought in more ministers. And he preached in the tradition of heaven and hell. I actually haven't experienced in evangelical preaching, though my ex-wife's family were born-agains. And um, I did, when her mother died, there was a sort of evangelical person, preacher, who... um, was preaching uh, for her um, um, in the burial process. So that was what I've experienced. So he, anyway, preached in the tradition of heaven and hell. And one, one day he was watching a TV show and he saw these young African children who were suffering from malnutrition. And the thought came to him, how is it that these young children who haven't been introduced to Jesus Christ would go to hell because they haven't taken Jesus as their savior? Why would God do that? And it came to him that actually that isn't what God is doing. A voice came to him and said, I am not creating hell. I am opening my arms to every human being whether they take Jesus Christ as their savior or not. This was this incredible, radical opening. And so he went back to all the ministers in his church and he said, I haven't been preaching God's word. His true word is that he is open to take everyone in love. And I'm telling you this slightly strange story because... People left him in droves. It went, thousands of people stopped coming to his church because he stopped preaching about heaven and hell. He lost the church. The church went into foreclosure. He lost his home. He lost many of his friends. And he said in this interview, you know, if I'd known what would 
unfold from opening my mouth, I probably wouldn't have opened my mouth. But having opened my mouth, I would not go back. Because different people started coming to his church. Because he was open in his preaching, he said, very feminine men came. And also Unitarians. (laughs) People who didn't even believe in God. And so he ended up with a different community. And what moved me about the story is what it took, the conditions inside of his mind and heart that allowed him to open up to a new insight. And what would it take for us to be open enough to allow for the blessing of insight. Because this path is about seeing clearly the truth, our truth, our personal truth, and the universal truth of life and of nature. We could say that this, the culmination of our path of truth-seeking can be described as this opening of seeing, of letting go of the habitual opinions and thoughts that we have that might have guided us for years and years and years, not only guided us, but might even be a deep part of our identity in the same way that heaven and hell were a very deep part of the identity of this preacher. And the Buddha is so clear in delineating for us the conditions that we can actually create for insight to happen for seeing truth as it is. And what's so beautiful and what I feel so moved about in in wanting to relay the story to you is that this truth isn't built on what other people want you to say. And this truth isn't built on being like popular because he had a TV program. And when they heard him start to preach differently, they took the TV program away. So this truth isn't about popularity. It's not about fame. It's not about income and money. And we can say that because when we connect with truth, when we connect with insight, it gives us a confidence that is unshakable. It doesn't matter anymore. Not that it doesn't mean we sometimes end up in a rough ride, but that the kinds of fluctuations in who likes us, how we're liked, whether we're popular, whether we're successful, whether we're recognized, all that stuff 
begins to fall away and we're not moved, we're not moved away from that insight and connection of this is my truth. And that's why we say that the heart of this tradition is about insight. And so then the question is, well, what are the conditions that bring insight? What is it that we can cultivate in order not to make insight happen because we can't make it happen, but we can create the conditions for it? And the Buddha said there were four areas in our lives that were the primary obstacles or confusers that block insight or that don't allow insight to happen. And he called these areas the four great attachments. So the first is attachment to pleasure central pleasure. And the second is attachment to opinions and um, ideology, beliefs. And the third is to norms and conventions. And the fourth is believing that we are... um, that our lives are defined very narrowly and tightly as um, an unchanging as as an unchanging personality or as a personality so just to explore this a little bit and to say the first attachment this holding on tightly as um, sometimes I feel it's as a way to save myself, you know, and it's the difference between believing or opening to or intuiting there is a current or a stream of life that when we surrender, we are taken to the ground of our being. That there is an inherent wholeness that we can tune into, let go into, open into, that is the grounds of our dignity and beauty as human beings. That's where our real happiness resides. And when we get locked into thinking that our happiness resides in the pleasure of seeing or hearing, or tasting, or touching, or thinking, the, the kinds of um, pleasures that remind me of going to a fair. I um, spend part of my life in London, and I don't know if you have it here, but we used to have cotton candy. Do you have cotton candy where they would spin it? And you know how you would like 
take a bite of cotton candy and it would like dissolve in a minute. It was so temporary, you know? And so then you would have to take another one. It was just like, I mean, a, you know, a chocolate bar feels eternal compared to a cotton, you know, that cotton candy. So it's kind of called a cheap happiness. You know that cotton candy? It didn't last long. And the Buddha says that sensual pleasure is kind of like a cheap happiness. Because no matter how pleasurable it is, and it's pleasurable, and there's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong with experiencing pleasure. It's just that we put all the energy of our being into it, into seeking it, into holding it, and in trying to control it. And in doing that, we imprison ourselves. So I was in a prayer circle last weekend in Mendocino, and it was for New Year. And um, sometimes when I'm in a prayer circle, it's, um, it was in the a tradition of the peyote church, but we didn't have peyote. Um, sometimes, you know, like any sitting, it happens or it doesn't happen. But this prayer circle, I was like, I was rattling away and praying, and I was like, wow, I feel such deep joy, and I'm so happy, and I'm like so into this rattling. It, it was really exquisite. And then a good friend sitting next to me said, you know, I'm feeling kind of imprisoned in the circle. I don't know. I didn't know we were going to have this type of circle. And, you know, I don't know if I want to stay. And I hated her. For a moment, I hated her. She's like, she's changing the circle. She's taking it away. (laughs) It was so great to see, you know, just so great to see that way we hold on to what is pleasurable. And the cultural expression of that is very deep. I grew up in South Africa, and I grew up during the years of apartheid. And I don't know if any of you have been in... um, South Africa during the apartheid years, it was like the it was like this country, but even more intense in um, in the old days. So there was a lot of violence to keep that kind of racism in place, and I saw good people like you and me. So identified with that system because of the comfort and pleasure it gave. It meant that white people had servants. It meant that white people had a lot more access to resources. And resources meant, you know, swimming pools and nice gardens and things that many, most white people had because of the Um, oppression of black Africans and Indians. 
That addiction to pleasure was the basis, a big basis of apartheid. So that's the social expression of it. It isn't just psychological. It's also cultural and social, that addiction to pleasure. It's big. It's big. And, you know, in thinking about the addiction to pleasure uh, as white people, and in this country too, because there is so much racism here that continues, just for example, all the addiction um, to the culture of heterosexism or the addiction that we have around class, all those different things when we're in a privileged position, and each one of us in some way or another is in a privileged position, so much of that privilege is held in place by addiction to the central pleasure of it, to the control that we have around it, to the access of resources that we have around it. So just um, to look at the power of that and the repercussions of that addiction, both psychologically, relationally, and culturally. It's big. And that's what the Buddha was pointing to when he said, when we're addicted, we're closing the mind and heart to insight, to our true home, and where we, where we source the natural expression of heart and mind. I just want to quickly scan because I'd like to actually invite you into a diet. Um, The next one, which is opinions and thoughts. Having delineated a little bit, you're probably guessing, you know, where my perspective came from. My parents were anti-apartheid activists and were imprisoned um, uh, while we were in South Africa. So um, their activism and amazing courage um, and their perspective was really handed down to me. I was in a conference a number of years ago and had this really lovely connection with someone. And she mentioned that she had gone to South Africa and she said, and yeah, you know, that the blacks, they, they were much better taken care of during the apartheid era than now with the ANC. And I watched myself shut down to her because she had a different perspective mm-hmm. that I don't agree with, that I deeply don't agree with. How do we create camps inside of ourselves and outside of ourselves according to the opinions that we have. It it is deep. It's deep. And what's beautiful about this practice is that 
it allows us to begin to turn our attention towards the feelings that we have when we are speaking an opinion or thinking an opinion and noticing if there's any sense of contraction or selfing around it, like, yeah, I am anti-apartheid, you know? I see how much it's part of my identity in a way that actually makes enemies of others. How do we hold our thoughts and perspectives? And is it possible to hold them lightly so that we don't make enemies of ourselves or of others? And that kind of really branches onto conventions and looking at the ways we hold conventions so tightly. For example, when I travel a lot and I'm sitting in a plane, someone will say, well, do you have children? Just that assumption that because I have a woman's body that I would want to have children or that I that that's a sort of question you ask rather than another question. You know, the different assumptions we have around gender or around class, again, the different assumptions we have around bodies and the size of bodies, that different assumptions like, um, I know that um, my uh, family was also... Um, what can I say, my father in particular was a bit of a snob. And so when I would bring someone home, he would say, and so what work do you do? You know, as a way to define someone as good or bad or successful or not. How do we see social conventions and norms? And can we hold them lightly? So I would, that seems like um, enough for now. I would like to invite you to turn to someone and to take a few moments to explore one place, whether it's around opinions or beliefs or sensual pleasure, where you feel an attachment and a holding, like a wanting or a clinging. And just to take a few minutes to explore it, like two minutes, and then to take two minutes to explore a moment of releasing, when you have experienced a letting go and releasing of, a, of an attachment to an idea, or an opinion, a pleasure of some kind, a convention or a norm. Like it's sometimes really helpful to actually just feel in your body that feeling of holding and also the feeling of releasing. So turn to someone and introduce yourself and take a moment and explore that. And you can do a threesome if there's no um, 
um, a threesome is fine.
Thank you for that. And I just wondered if there were any questions before we come to an end um, or anything I said that didn't make sense. Okay, no questions? So then um, let's take a moment and share the merit of our time together. Just taking uh, together the reflection of the blessings of inquiring, of listening to the Dharma. The blessings of relative safety. And being in a community of respect. Acknowledging these blessings and others that you would like to name. And sharing them with one being a community of beings, or all beings. May our practice contribute to our well-being and the well-being of all beings. Thank you. I think there are a few announcements. Thank you, Arena, for your teaching and your presence. And uh, hope you felt welcome here and as you welcomed us all. I have a... Um, feels hard <laughs> to talk about um, how we support ourselves, but it's, it's a weekly Donna talk. But we at Mission Dharma are supported by the contributions of the people who come and practice. And so our being here tonight is because people have made contributions to the support of our room rental, which is $160 a month. And people have um, volunteered to help set up and break down, which we are always um, looking for more people to help us with kind of the setup of, of Mission Dharma. So that is also a way that you can contribute to the continuing kind of well-being of our community and, and allow us to keep, keep meeting here. Um, and the teachings each week are, are given freely. So anyone who takes the seat here is doing so in the tradition that the Buddha practiced for over 2,500 years ago, that the teachings are considered priceless and that our support of the teacher is a way of expressing our love of the teaching and the continuation of that tradition in our community. So we have a number of different ways that you can make a contribution for the teaching as well. The room rental and the teaching Donna baskets are, there's one at the back door and there's one up on the organ bench, and you can 
make a cash donation, a check donation can be tax deductible if you make the check out to um, St. John the Evangelist Church that will go to the room rental and it's a tax deductible donation we have a PayPal we have a lot of different ways so um, thank you so much for your generosity and thank you again to Arena and I, I, I forgot to mention that I'm, I'm leading a retreat for the queer community at Spirit Rock this coming Sunday with Susanna Ronald and it's called Bearing Witness to Ourselves, Bearing Witness to the World. And I especially extend an invitation to those of you who um, are uh, part of the queer community to come. I also forgot to mention that Arena has a book that is a wonderful primer on insight meditation and um, Welcome. It's the, if you go to our website, there's a link on on her on the Tuesday night sangha schedule that has a link to her book that you can find out more about. Thank you all, and look forward to seeing you next week. MissionDharma.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.